At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. We're going to be starting a new series today out of Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapters 21 through 23 will be in for the next five weeks in a series called Authentic. And in these chapters of Scripture, we see Jesus confronting an imitation faith that he saw in the religious leaders of his day. So Jesus came into the world, and the religious leaders in Israel at that time were practicing an imitation, not the genuine article of a relationship in a religious relationship with God. So Jesus goes in and, and, and confronts that. And at the same time, he shows us a picture of what an authentic and genuine faith looks like. And today, we're going to be kicking off that series by seeing a picture of genuine and authentic faith and how we can find that in Christ by looking at Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 to 17. So that's where we're going to be this morning. But before we look at those verses together, I I want to just ask each of you a question. And I, I don't want you to raise your hand, but I do want you each personally to answer this question. And that the question I want you to answer is this. How many of you know someone who has rejected Christianity because of their interactions with another Christian or with a church? How many of you know someone who has said no to Jesus because of their interactions with another Christian or their interactions with a group of Christians in an organized way, something like a church? You know, for some of you, maybe even you personally might go, yes, I know someone like that, it's, it's me. And I'm here today with one foot out the door, here with a friend, but, but not fully in in terms of my heart because I have walked away from this thing called Christianity because of my experience either with a church or with another Christian. Maybe it's through some abuse personally felt or seen in the news. Maybe it's through some personal interaction that has soured your stomach to Christianity Maybe it's through a business transaction with somebody that had a cross on their desk or a business card, or maybe it was from some interaction with somebody who cut you off and had an ichthus on their bumper. I don't know what it is, but it's possible that that you might be or you might know someone who is rejecting Jesus, rejecting Christianity because of your interactions with a Christian or with a church. If that's the case, friends, I want us to turn our eyes to Matthew 21. Because in Matthew 21, here's what we see. We see Jesus also rejecting a version or a brand of Christianity that you might have also found repulsive. We see Jesus cleaning house on a religious expression that was all about benefiting those in charge and not about helping those in need. Friends, we see in Matthew's gospel, we see a compassionate Savior who clears out the clutter of religion and pretension surrounding it so that people might be able to freely connect with the God who created them that might hide in him and not in their religion. Friends, we're going to see that today in Matthew 21. And my hope for all of us is that we might be encouraged, that we might be encouraged to walk away from the imitation faith that we might have been sold 
and head into a genuine faith, a genuine relationship with God found in Jesus as we see this picture of our compassionate Savior. So we're going to read Matthew 21, verses 12 through 17, and then we'll back up and see two things in it today that I think are essential for us to understand about an authentic faith. The context is Jesus has entered into Jerusalem. Uh, The verses that immediately precede this are the verses that we know of as the Palm Sunday account, where Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey on the Sunday before he offered his life on the cross on a Friday. And after he enters Jerusalem, he he looks around, he goes and spends the night with a friend and comes back the following Monday, and we pick it up in verse 12. It says, And Jesus entered the temple, and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. Friends, in these few verses, we're going to see two things today about pursuing a genuine and authentic faith. The first thing that we're going to see is this. We're going to see Jesus cleaning house. We're going to see Jesus clean house. Now, where do we see that? We see that in verses 12 and 13. As Jesus shows up in Jerusalem, he goes immediately, it says, to the temple Now, that lets us know something of Jesus' priorities. Because if Jesus was primarily interested in overthrowing the oppressive Roman government that was ruling over Israel at that time, if he was primarily going to be a political savior, if he was primarily going to be a military hero, Jesus would not have gone first to the temple. He would have gone to the Antonius Fortress. He would have gone to the place of Roman power in the city of Jerusalem. He would have gone to where the troops were stationed. He would have gone to where Pilate was sitting and ruling. He would have gone to that location. But Jesus doesn't go there. Jesus instead goes to the temple. Now, why did he go to the temple? Jesus goes to the temple because he is primarily, friends, interested in the hearts and souls of his people. He's primarily interested in his first coming in reconciling those hearts to God, that they might have a genuine and authentic relationship with him. Not just to be a military conqueror and not just to be a political hero, Jesus came for a much more important task in his first coming, and that was to rescue and save the hearts of his people. So he goes to the place in the city of Jerusalem where there was this massive expression of relationship with God, and that was in the temple complex. Now, what did the temple complex look like? You know, we might think of it like just a building, a small building, a big building. I don't know what's in your head, but this 
picture right here shows what the temple looked like in Jesus' day. So when he goes into Jerusalem and it says he enters the temple, this is where he went. Now, there had been a temple in Jerusalem for many years before Jesus' time. But this particular temple that Jesus went to was a temple that was constructed by a man named Herod the Great, the very same Herod the Great who ruled over Israel at the time that Jesus was born. See, Herod saw the temple that was there, and he decided that it wasn't impressive enough. It wasn't big enough. It didn't look good enough. And so uh, several years before Jesus was born, Herod went about an expansion project to make a bigger and better, in his estimation, temple. But his problem was that that area where the temple sat was not big enough to house his ambition. So what do you do if you're Herod the Great and the, the mountain isn't big enough? You make a bigger mountain. And so he goes in and he cuts off literally the top of this mountain and he builds this massive, massive, massive platform, several football fields in length. And he puts retaining walls around the outside. If you've seen pictures of the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, that's what's left of the temple area. It's just the retention wall that held this platform where the temple would sit. And on top of this gigantic platform that was built, a temple building was placed in the, in the very middle. That's the, the middle building that you see. And that's where the sacrifices were offered and all of those things. But you'll notice that the temple complex is far larger than that. And there actually is a biblical route to the area around the temple being open to others and that God created around the temple a place that was called the court of the Gentiles, an area outside the temple walls where non-Jewish people could come and pray and learn about the one true God. That was the intended purpose of the area around the temple area. But Herod saw all of the extra land that he built as not an opportunity for more Gentiles to come and to learn about the one true God, not as a, as a location for them to come and pray. But Herod saw all of this and said, you know what, this is a really great place to make a buck. And so you'll notice in the court of the Gentiles, which is this area, there's a, a red roof along this left edge and then a large courtyard leading up to the temple. That was this area of the court of the Gentiles. And by the time of Jesus, that area was full of a shopping mall called the Bazaar of Annas. Herod went in cahoots with Annas, the high priest, and they, they, they built this whole bazaar, this whole shopping mall where they can make a buck off people coming to worship. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, one of the things they did was they changed money. They had this genius idea. It's devious, but it was genius in the sense that they said, you know what? Worldly money is too dirty to be used in the house of God. So if people want to buy things in the house of God, they need to get temple money. They need to get clean money. And so they would change their worldly money for the clean money at a 25% surcharge. Now think about that. We don't do that here, and that's not part of what we do, but, but we are familiar with this experience. How many of you have ever been to the Texas State Fair? <laughs> right? Your good, hard-earned American dollars aren't good there. When you want to buy that corny dog, you got to go and trade it in for tickets so that you would use it to buy overpriced products at the fair. Right? I use the Texas State Fair because someone working for the Oklahoma State Fair might be with us today. Uh, 
But here's the thing. So they made a system where people had to buy temple tickets to make purchases in the complex, and the priests made 25%. Now, on top of that, sacrifices were needed at the temple, and so they sold them. And we might think, well, that was nice and convenient. People were traveling from all over. They wouldn't have to bring their animals. They could buy an animal there at the temple and take care of all of their transaction right there. But, but that was not the intent. Because if that was the intent, they would have, would have either given them away or sold them at a discount or at least at cost. But what we found was in the temple of Jesus' day, in the bazaar of Annas, those animals were being sold for 10x their normal price. So they already lost 25% getting their temple tickets. Now they had to buy a 10 times inflated price sacrifice. Now, theoretically, people could bring their own sacrifice to avoid that inflation, like smuggling into the movie theater your own candy, right? You don't want to pay the inflated price, you bring it in. But here was the problem. They had an answer for everything. The priests were the one who determined if the sacrifice was acceptable. And guess which sacrifices were acceptable? Only the ones bought with the 25% upcharge temple tickets and the 10x cost sacrifices. You see the racket they were working here? And all of that was based on the premise that, that people wanted and needed reconciliation with God. And so they set up this system. They prayed on that emotion. They prayed on that need and they were selling salvation at a profit. And guess who got extremely rich as a result? The priests. If you go to Jerusalem today and you walk around, when you get to the priestly area and you go underground and you see where the priests lived, you see what they had, it would turn your stomach, the wealth that was accumulated on the backs of people in that system. Friends, when I describe that religious system, people who were placed in leadership with the purpose of serving others and inviting others to learn about God, to know God, and to serve him, those people instead turning that system into a personal profit and moneymaker. Does it not turn your stomach just a little bit? Well, guess who else's stomach it turned? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. When he showed up in that system, he sees what is going on. His harshest behavior and his strongest words are reserved for that moment. He goes in and he doesn't debate. What does he do? He goes in and he flips over the tables. You can imagine on those tables were a bunch of coins. When you flip over the table, what happens? Those coins scatter everywhere. And not only do the the coins scatter, but when he starts kicking down the cages where the animals are held and the pigeons are and all that stuff, what happens? Those animals are going everywhere. I mean, it is a chaotic scene. And in that moment, what did look like this beautiful, pristine temple area becomes totally chaotic. But it was clean. See, the, 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 the reality is that we often look at things that are orderly and we assume that they are righteous, but in sometimes things that are, look very rough and, and disjointed and, and challenged, those are the, the moments where, where God is honored the most. And we see that happening right here in the temple. Jesus cleaned house even though it looked less tidy because he, what he was most concerned about was people's connection to God, not hiding inside of a sham of a religion, but coming to him in a genuine faith. 
When Jesus does that, when he flips over those tables and those things, uh, a commentary is, is mentioned here about why he does it and what he was up to by pointing to Isaiah 56, 7 and Jeremiah 7, 11, two different portions of verses when he talks about the house that was supposed to be for the house of prayer. That's the Isaiah 56 quotation. A house of prayer, by the way, Isaiah says, for the nations. That court of the Gentiles was intended to be a place where people could connect to God who were far from him, and yet it had become a place where leaders inside the religion were exploiting those who were coming there. It had become, it says in the words of Jeremiah 7, 11 and Matthew 21, 13, a den of robbers, a place where religious leaders were hiding inside their religion, their selfish ambition and desire exploiting those around them. Now, friends, when you hear all of that, it it, it turns our stomach, but it ought to encourage us greatly that what turns our stomach also is what turns the stomach of God. Jesus didn't authorize and sanction that kind of exploitation, but he vigorously opposed it. When you think about the church today and the church in history Do we have any way where we are challenged by this notion? Certainly, historically, we think of things like in the Middle Ages when the church was selling indulgences like merchandise. They were selling salvation to to others saying, if you just buy this relic, if you just give enough money to this program, then God's favor will be upon you and forgiveness will come to your house. If you just pay to go rub this rock where Jesus once stood, then your sins will be forgiven. There was all kinds of weird indulgences in the Middle Ages where the church was doing exactly what was happening in the bazaar of Annas. But sadly, we don't have to go all the way back to the Middle Ages to see those kinds of things, do we? Even today, there are those that we might see or hear about or read that say, if you just send enough money, then God's blessing will be upon you. If you just give enough, then this will happen as if salvation is a piece of merchandise that can be transacted in that way, that it's something we can buy or earn, not something that God just freely gives. Friends, that's a religion that God vigorously opposes. We see that in the, the, the broad strokes, but I think even in In another way, we we see this show up when leaders, instead of serving the people that they're called to lead, begin exploiting others. We see this with abuse, either physical or emotional, where leaders inside churches are using their position and authority in inappropriate ways to exploit those they're called to serve. That turns our stomach. It also turns the stomach of the God who created us. Friends, when Jesus shows up, he cleans house. But I don't want us to miss this this second point, because I think it's really important for us to see. Not only does Jesus clean house, but he also cleans us. He also cleans us. Now, where do we see that in in this passage? We see it, friends, in the blind and the lame. Now, I want you to think for just a moment about this temple scene and the courtyard and and all of the merchants that were there and all the activity that was happening in that court of the Gentiles. Just on the outside of those gates, 
At the time of Jesus, and really throughout the first century, people would show up who were blind or lame. They would show up and they would beg there, thinking that those who were coming to worship might give of their, their resources to those who were in need. And so they would stand there and they would beg, but there wasn't room for them or a place for them inside the temple area because of all of this commerce that was happening. But when Jesus flips the tables and Jesus pushes open the animal enclosures and, and all heck breaks loose inside the court of the Gentiles, the people who are selling those things take off. But who is left inside that area, now there is space for others to come in. And those who come in are the blind and the lame who were once on the outside but, but come in. But, but notice where they find Jesus. They find him in the temple. And they find him in the area of the court of the Gentiles. And friends, that's as far as they thought that they could go. Because in that era of time, people who were blind and lame were considered unclean. They weren't allowed to enter the temple of God. They were able to stay in the court of the Gentiles, sure, but they couldn't go on the inside. But when they show up, friends, what happens? It says Jesus healed them. He, he touches them, and the one who could not see could then see. The one who could not walk could then walk. And not only does physical healing come to those folks, friends, but now they are able to enter the temple as cleansed by God and able to offer worship and live in relationship with him. Isn't that amazing? And friends, that picture is the picture of you and I. If you have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Friends, you are the blind and the lame who came to Jesus and because of his death on the cross, we've been cleansed. We've been restored and we have been invited inside the house where we might be able to worship him. We see this in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22, where it says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and the living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Friends, Jesus cleanses us, and he invites us inside to worship and live with him. Friends, if you have trusted in Christ, we're in this story as the blind and the lame, those that had nothing to offer in our own merit, but were made right by God. And friends, if you are here today and you walked in as one of those who was on the outside, you, the closest you're getting is the outer courts. You, you've snuck in the back today. You've rejected Christianity for whatever reason. Know that you too could find your I, connection to this story in the blind and the lame because you've been invited in. Jesus is clearing out the stuff that has once separated you from him. And he's invited you in today. And he's saying, hey, trust me. Hide in me, not in religion, not in your works. Hide in me. And I will usher you to the inside that you might be restored and might be able to live in relationship with God forever and worship him. That option is available to all of us. Well, when that happens and these are, are healed, what's, what's fascinating is, is what happens next. Children 
see this, and they begin to sing. When it says children, uh, that word children that, that are singing, that is that maybe they were about 12 years old. And that is maybe these are 12-year-old boys who had just come to the temple for the first time after their bar mitzvah for their first Passover. And so these young people see what is going on and they begin singing the same song they heard their parents singing on the road to Palm Sunday just the day before. They're saying, Hosanna in the highest, that's the Messiah, that's the Son of God. They were celebrating Jesus. But as that song is being sung over Jesus, what was happening with the religious leaders? Like cockroaches, they had run under the edges as the temples were being turned, but they begin to re-emerge and they look at what's happening and rather than celebrate and worship with them, instead they, they begin to become indignant at the situation. Now, they cannot be indignant at the, the miracle of the healings because the one who was lame is over there dancing in the corner and the one who was blind is now looking at the brilliance of the temple around them. They can't argue with the miracle. So what do they do? They argue with what is happening. They argue with the fact that Jesus is allowing people to worship him because only God can be worshiped. And of course, they were right if Jesus wasn't who he said he was, but Jesus is the son of God. Therefore, the worship that is coming to him is deserved. And so Jesus responds to their indignation by quoting Psalm chapter 8, verse 2. I love it when Jesus says, have you never read? That's his way of saying to the religious leaders, hey, have you guys not read your Bible? Maybe you need to read a little Psalm 8, because in Psalm 8, verse 2, it talks about infants and nursing babies declaring praise to God. In other words, there is something that happens when Messiah comes that is so obvious that even very small children can recognize it. Why do you not see it? That's what Jesus was saying. And yet, they didn't see it. They didn't want to give up their system and their money in their resources. Jesus was such a threat. They didn't want any part of that. They rejected it. And in their rejection, we see that it's possible that though Jesus can cleanse each of us, it is not a guarantee. We must respond to his offer to cleanse us the way the children in the temple who recognize him as the son of God, the way that the blind and the lame come with nothing to offer but seeking his deliverance and his healing and his forgiveness. Friends, how are you responding today? Like the children, the blind, and the lame? Or like the religious leaders? Jesus came and cleaned house. But he also came to clean us. Would you be cleaned by him? Father, thank you for the opportunity to worship today. Thank you for the power of this this truth. Thank you for the beauty of the gospel. Thank you that that what turns our stomach so many times about religion is also something that you did not authorize, but you opposed. And thank you that the picture of the Savior healing the blind and the lame can be the reality for each of us today. I pray that each of us today would trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. To your glory and honor. In his name we pray.